Welcome to episode 132 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. It's that time for a little affirmations and denials. It is. It is. Why don't you start us out this week? So this is something that I want to affirm with, but probably is a really long time coming. But I've been testing this out because if I'm going to throw out the big old A, that's affirmation, then I want to make sure that it's totally legit. So I can't even claim, claim credit for this because really this came to me by way of a friend or a coworker named Nate. And that is, um, I just totally lost my mind. That is, <laughs> I, was, I was so excited about this. I was about to give the brand name rather than the thing itself. But picture this. Do you take a lot of notes at work or like in life generally? Not really, no. I'm okay, not much of a never note mind. taker. This is totally falling flat I have to take already. some notes at work because I like take notes for meetings, but I'm not much of a note taker. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. So even like with the little notes you take, like at church, at work, picture this. You want to write with something that feels like you're writing with a stick of butter that's like smooth and gentle. And Do flows. I? Do I want to write with a stick of butter? Yes, because okay. th- this just shows that you've never yet written with a stick of butter. And that's okay, because I was, I was in that camp too. But this is what I want to affirm with, and that is fountain pen. Oh, man. It is life-changing, like no joke. So my coworker and and very good friend, Nate, recommended this to me. And I want to recommend a specific fountain pen because it's inexpensive. It's a workhorse. It's really forgiving. You don't have to like learn to write in a new way. You don't have to like buy a purple robe and like become a strange dude. You can just get this pen and do your normal writing, but it's incredibly smooth. It really changes note-taking. And it's the Lamy Safari fountain pen. So it's L-A-M-Y fountain pen. You can find it on Amazon. It's really awesome. No joke. It's a fantastic, but it's like the best writing pen you will ever own. And you don't have to be the kind of dude that like likes, likes to write with like a quill or needs to write necessarily in some kind of like Spencerian script. You can just write your normal way. It's really beautiful. Like, have you ever had like a really nice pen that you're like, this just writes so nice. I want to write everything. Every word I ever have learned, I want to write right now. Um, no, you have risen to entirely new levels of nerdy though. Like completely. (laughs) So little known fact, I actually have written with a stick of butter before. So when I was, when I was a little kid and I was learning to write, uh, I took a stick of butter and I wrote all over the front of the, uh, stove, like with the stick of butter. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty good experience. I don't know. I was a kid. Kids do weird stuff, but uh, my favorite pen is actually an Enerjel liquid gel ink pen by Pentel. Like they they cost like it's like two or three dollars per pen, right? And I make I make I literally make my department buy these pens when I buy pens at work <laughs> instead of like the cheap Bic stick pens that everyone else uses. Right. And it's because I'm left handed. I mean, you're left handed, too. So, you know, this like when you're left handed, when you go to write in English, like you smear everything. Right. And so like gel pens write really, really smoothly, but they they don't dry fast. And ink pens don't write very smoothly, but they dry fast. But these gel pens, they're Enerjel. They're like a mixture of gel and ink. So they write smoothly, but they also dry quickly. So that's my so go-to I, pen. 
I know this struggle and I know that gel pen because I'm down with you. Like mm-hmm. if, if you're left-handed, you know the journey, which is like everything in this world is made for yeah. righties. And it's just an absolute crime. I think yeah. I may have mentioned on this podcast before how because everything is made for right-handers, I once at a church workday set myself on fire, incidentally, using a leaf blower. <laughs> this is the same thing with the pen. So I, I can really affirm that I'm going to go out on a limb, and this may be totally unpopular, but I think this Lamy Safari pen is better than the inkjet because it's smoother. It's easier actually to write, believe it or not, because the, I mean, simple technology, but also the ink cartridge that's being used in this pen is just brilliant it it when you where you're writing it's writing wet but it's drying instantly and again i'm like left-handed so like my body wants to smudge everything that i put on paper yeah and that doesn't happen with this pen so again i'm just affirming straight up not only with, with fountain pens in general but specifically with this lamy safari fountain pen so people gotta check it out i i'm not getting any kickbacks from Lamy. I'm just saying it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And you have like the most amazing handwriting ever. Like you're, I, people <laughs> see kind. your handwriting and they're like, is that a font? Like you write like a font. It's, <laughs> it's like the most crisp, clear, perfectly formed letters. And they're like small. I wish that That's I had handwriting kind. like yours. If I had handwriting like yours, I would probably write more often. But a lot That's of times I write like kind. I, this is why I'm not a, not a note taker is because I take my notes And then I go back to review them and I can't even read my own handwriting. So are you script, print, or some kind of combo? Print. Well, it's kind of a combo because I write fast. So like things blur together. But I'm not like trying to write in cursive, but there's certain characters that become kind of like a script just because of how quickly I'm writing. Yeah. Yeah, it just happens. All right. So what do you got for an affirmation? So this is going to sound much more awkward than it is, especially since uh, I'm married to your little sister. I'm affirming. great. hickeys (laughs) why so hickeys are actually a brand of shoelaces oh thank you with a strange name so have you ever heard of these they're like they're like uh no tie shoelaces so what they are is they're little um they're little elastic straps that you put through your shoelace holes like the shoelace eyelets and then they clip together and it makes them like the shoes from uh back to the future that are automatic so it turns all of your shoes into slip-on shoes but they have different ways you can lace them up for different like levels of tightness and basically that turns the shoes into slip-ons because they're elastic but as soon as you put them on they like cinch back down and they're nice and tight on your feet so for someone like me who's constantly got shoelaces untied, it's really nice because you just you put them in there once, then they turn into slip-ons, and you never have to tie your shoes again. All right, so here's the question, though, with these. Can you look cool wearing these and not look like geriatric? Yeah, they look just like shoelaces. I mean, they, they're okay. laced across. It looks just like shoelaces in terms of the way that it looks on your foot. The only thing that's different is there's no, like, shoe, like, bow. There's no, like, tie. So, but right. it, it looks like little straps that just go across your shoes. Like there's nothing really that looks different. And I'd have to think about it a little bit, but I'm pretty sure you could actually lace them up in a way. So like you lace them and then you have to like clip them together. So the little like clip thing that, that holds it in place, you can see it. It looks like a little button. You could probably lace it in a certain way where that was actually hidden under the shoe, like under the edge of the shoelace. So they're really cool. Okay. They're They're not super cheap, but when you think about like, if you buy like, I don't know, like I go through shoelaces fast for some reason and I have to buy like new shoelaces probably like every six or seven months I have to replace my shoelaces because they just get like like ragged and frayed. 
if I get these and they last me for like a year and a half, two years, then that's equivalent to buying like four or five pairs of shoelaces. Fair enough. Okay. I'm down with that. I'd be willing to give that a shot. They're pretty sweet. I mean, they're really cool, but they do kind of tie into my denial. So we'll, uh, we'll go into that in a minute here. Okay. Well, let me hit you with the denial first before now. I'm just super curious as to what your denial is. I think I've been, my position has been secured on this particular podcast that I'm a fan of beer. I enjoy a good beer every now and again. And yet there's something that I need to deny against with respect to beer. And that is people spicing their beer. I just can't get behind this. And I want to, because I feel like the spicing of beer is a bit like olives in that people who love olives love it so passionately that you want to come onto that team and the same is true with spicing of beers, and I just can't handle it. I tried it again today, and I just couldn't get wait, behind wait, wait, it. Wait, wait, wait. So do you mean beers that are brewed with spices or like people actually putting spices in their beers? Who can really tell the difference these days? I, I, it's a probably – I don't really know the answer to that question because I just know that the last several beers that somebody said this is spiced – I don't know what they're doing except putting the sin into the beer somehow. The such sin? That it, yes. The such spice. That, <laughs> such that it makes me dislike it so much. Again, all I can think of is that sin, that the spice is a synonym for sin. Somehow they're Im- imbibing it into the beer. So I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I like some spiced beers. If what you mean is like a beer that is brewed with spices. So like a good like winter lager that has a little nutmeg flavor to it. Or like I'm not a big fan of like pumpkin beer at, at like like during the fall. But like a good a good subtle pumpkin spicy like beer with a little bit of nutmeg that I can get behind. It's kind of like a spiced mule or something like that. So it's funny you bring that up because the two I had today were a winter lager yeah. <laughs> and a pumpkin beer. And I forget, they, they both were advertised as like spice beers. The pumpkin was like more offensive. Like I was literally like, this is offending me right now. I, I have to stop. The winter was a little bit better. And yeah. probably to your point, it is more of the fact like that usually they're doing it in like post-production, whatever that means for beer. Like, yeah, here's a really nice, delicious beer. Let me just throw a bunch of spices into it. And all of a sudden now we have pumpkin. So yeah, there's a marked difference. I mean, I'm not like a beer expert, you know, more about the brewing process than I do, but you can really tell the difference between a beer where it's brewed with spice or like any, really any sort of like flavor extract or flavor that they're trying to infuse into the beer. You can tell the difference between a beer where they actually brew it with that flavor versus a beer where they add that flavor afterwards. And it's like anytime they do that, it's just like artificial and gross. But like Sam Adams has a good uh, winter beer called Cold Snap that has, I think it's probably nutmeg. It seems like everything is nutmeg when it's a spice, but it's got like cinnamon and nutmeg in it. And I like that. But I only like that in the winter, though. Like, why would you drink a winter lager when it's like 70 degrees out? I don't know. It was, first of all, well done on guessing the exact temperature that it was here today. That was absolutely fantastic. Second, I don't know the answer to that question either, but it was what was part of this like sampling flight. So it was definitely a winter lager. So I just couldn't, I don't know. Am I getting old? Does that mean I'm old now that I like, I'm like, I want to shake my fist at the spice and say, get off my lawn. No, I don't think it is. I think you just have a discerning palate when it comes to beer. (laughs) That's again, very kind of you. So what do you, what do you got that you're denying? So I am denying blisters on your heels. So you're a runner, so I'm sure you know all about this. So 
I got these new shoes. I used to have these like old beat up like Adidas Sambas that I loved. Oh, but now Sambas that I'm a, so good. now that I'm a supervisor, I can't really get away with wearing those to work because they look like I'm a, like a college student who wants to play some hacky sack. Um, <laughs> and I love orange. So I had these bright orange shoelaces. So I was like, you know, I'm 36 years old. I'm a supervisor. I should probably dress like a professional. So I bought like a like a nice pair of Adidas sneakers because I walk a lot at work. So I have to have something I can walk in. Right. Um, I, I walk like 25,000 steps in a day at work. It's ridiculous. But I bought these nice plain black Adidas sneakers. And then I bought these Hickey's shoelace things. Um, because I also take my shoes off under my desk at work just because I can, because I have an office. So I wanted them to go on and off pretty easy. Well, I dropped my car off for an oil change the other day and it was like the first moderately nice morning there was like so far this year. So I walked from the bottom of the hill where I dropped my car off up to the hospital where I work and it's about a two mile walk. So not a big deal, except that I did it in brand new shoes with shoelaces that I wasn't familiar with. And I literally was soaking through my socks with blood when I got to the hospital so like I I'm like it's funny when you try to walk right now it's like I I'm all limpy and it's not good. So they've been healing for about two weeks now and they're still pretty bad. They're still pretty raw. Yeah, that's really rough because yeah. honestly blisters are to the feet what are spices to beer because <laughs> basically it's a small it's a small change in basically the status of something but it's amazing how much those things can hurt right yeah yeah and these might not even really be considered blisters anymore because it's literally like i just scraped the skin right off my heels like and and of course like no matter what shoes you wear now that's it's always going to press right in that same spot right so like I, I, that i literally have to try to like keep my shoes off for as much as time as possible during the day in order for them to start healing a little bit. Yeah. It takes a little while to come back for that. Again, yeah. talk about like sin in our world, such a small thing. It's like having a paper cut or anybody ever try to like pull out a nose hair. You basically have, well, might as well like torture yourself because I know. it's an amazing amount of pain. Why would you pull out a nose hair? I don't know. <laughs> why? Like I'm why? What's the context for that? I have a I really like... cool little like nose hair trimmer that I use, but well, that, that's kind of what I was thinking is like, hasn't everybody, maybe not, been in a place where you're trying to use a nose hair trimmer or you're oh, just you thinking like, oh, I can just yank yank this thing out real quick. It'll be no yeah. big deal. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, I wouldn't deny against that. Do not yeah. try that at home or yeah. anywhere else for that matter. It's true. It's true. Yeah. So we're continuing. This is the segue portion of our show. We're continuing our conversation of all kinds of atonement theories in part because I think it's amazing that the atonement is so significant in what Jesus did and in the life of the Christian that there's all these explanations for what was really accomplished on the cross. That still really floors me that it's so multifaceted that there's so many ways to look at it. And as we've been going kind of through these conversations, in a sense, we've been kind of talking about them in isolation. So as to kind of distill down the essential elements. And so this week we're looking at the moral influence theory, which also goes by other names like the subjective view or exemplarism. Yeah. And so just to throw out, to get us started, the way that I kind of encapsulate or think about the moral influence theory is that we're kind of pivoting from the other ones that we've looked at. We've looked at satisfaction theory and we've looked at the Christus Victor theory. And in this one, there's kind of a marked change in direction and in the efficaciousness of atonement by way of how this theory explains what happened on the cross. Yeah. And so we're, we're kind of wading in, at least with this one, into something that's more subjective. 
And the way I would kind of differentiate everything we talked about so far and what we're about to talk about now is that subjective theories of the atonement are those which really envision the focus or aim of Christ's sufferings to be really reflective of the human soul rather than God himself. And what we mean by that is basically that the moral influence theory of atonement kind of regards Christ's work as more or less a beautiful example of sacrificial Christian love and behavior. And this view was really given its most explicit portrayal by a dude named Peter Abelard in the 12th century. And he posited that Jesus' death did not accomplish anything objective, which sounds really extreme. But his point was basically that there's nothing in God's nature that necessitates satisfaction or prevents him from indiscriminately forgiving all at any time. And that's an interesting thought because he's basically arguing that the love of God and giving up his son was designed to kindle our hearts, kindle within our hearts, basically, a corresponding love and repentance, which together becomes the ground for forgiveness of our sins. So in other words, the object of Christ's death is not God, but man. And his aim was not to satisfy the Father's wrath, but to stimulate our love. So Christ bore our sins in the sense that he took them far away from us by inciting us to abandon them. And again, that's really different from everything we've talked about so far. Yeah, yeah. So you can you kind of already talked about it a little bit. You can break atonement theories up into two like two broad categories, right? There's objective uh, theories of the atonement, and and what that means is that the atonement accomplishes whatever it is that it accomplishes right. out, outside of the person. So so this sounds a little strange, but objective theories of the atonement don't actually do anything to the sinner themselves. Right. Exactly. So in Christus Victor or ransom theory, the atonement doesn't change the sinner. It breaks the power of death. Right. In in penal satisfaction, it doesn't change the sinner. It propitiates God's uh, the honor debt. It, it restores the honor to God, which allows him to then overlook the sins of the people. And then even like penal substitution, it doesn't actually do anything to me. What it does is it it erases the debt or it, it takes care of the the justice requirements of um, of God's justice. Right. But a subjective theory of the atonement, what that does is it actually it either changes something in the sinner um, or it provides something for which the sinner can change themselves. And that's right. really kind of where we end up with the moral influence theory is that moral influence theory doesn't really do anything to the sinner, but it provides us with the proper example by which to follow, right? So there's this more, it's moral exemplar or moral influence theory. So it, it gives us the example to follow and it motivates us to follow it, but it doesn't actually change anything within. It doesn't give me any power to follow it. It doesn't, um, it doesn't change my status before God or anything like that. All it does is it gives me the example to follow and it motivates me externally to follow it. So it's it's subjective because what it's doing is is um, it's opening a horizon or it's opening a possibility for me that I, as the subject, then uh, choose to follow or choose to be influenced by. But it doesn't inherently or intrinsically do anything to me like an objective you might. Right. And that's what's really distinctive about this. And I think particularly interesting to study because there's this sense in which the more influence theory is more than just passive in that it's almost as if we, if we can just be exposed to the death of Christ, then we'll be won over and we're won over by this example. So we have in Christ 
an example of how humanity should act. And so by demonstration of this amazing love, Christ's death was basically said to win over the hearts of impenitent sinners. Right. And thus really woo them to live a moral life as Jesus did. And of course, that's where we get this designation of a moral influence. Right. But it's interesting that proponents also stress that the atonement was a way for God to empathetically identify with his creatures by sharing in their suffering. So there's part of it, again, that tastes really sweet if we really kind of imbibe it, because the moral influence theory is also emphasizing, I think, to a large degree, in an extent that's somewhat beyond what we talked about so far, also the entire life of Jesus, not just his death. Because in exemplarism, we're seeing that the saving work of Jesus is not only in the event of the crucifixion, but also in all the words he's spoken, you know, right. an example that he has set throughout his entire life. And the cross is merely a ramification of the moral life of Jesus. This is also kind of distinct and interesting. So yeah. he is basically a crucified as a martyr due to the radical nature of his moral example. And so in this way, more influence theory emphasizes Jesus Christ as our teacher, our example, our founder, our leader, and ultimately as a result, really the first martyr. And so there's something interesting there because I think if you read it on the face, at least as I understand it, you get almost the crucifixion as this passive acknowledgement of, well, this is the logical outworking of an extreme and radical moralism that results from following the Lord or not following Jesus, but Jesus following the example or the path set forth by the father himself. Right. But it seems rather passive to me. Like, is that kind of an inappropriate conclusion to draw from this? Well, what do you mean by passive? Like in what sense do you think it's passive? Well, almost more kind of what you were talking about when we take the objectivism out of it and we say that it's, it's more subjective in nature, we have almost a sense that, well, Jesus was destined to die because of the way that he behaved, oh, not right. necessarily because it was this great volition on his part to make restitution for God's people. Right. Yeah. So, so in moral exemplar theory, the atonement isn't something that Jesus does. The atonement is something that happens to Jesus. Yes, exactly. Right? And so Jesus Jesus is not atoned for per se, but the the atonement is accomplished as Jesus submits himself to um, the logical outworkings of his moral life. And so they would, you know, typically the, the um, moral exemplar theory would rely heavily on uh, like the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, um, right. not, not as a... Uh, an illustration of the blessed life or as um, a law which is required of um, of Christians to live, but as sort of the example to follow. Right. So Jesus sets up this is what it means to be a follower of God. And here's the logical outcome. Right. So you have this, the, the Beatitudes. Right. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed or it's blessed is this group. Blessed is this group. Blessed is this group. And then it shifts in the last Beatitude. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. So they would look at that and say there's a there's a marked shift here. And, and the emphasis is on following Jesus in persecution. So this theory has a lot going for it in that it does sort of rely on a surface interpretation of many different biblical texts. Right. But um, I think, you know, we've seen the moral exemplar theory in church history before Abelard, right? Pelagius sure. was a moral exemplar sure. theorist, yep, right? Absolutely, yes. Now, but Abelard wasn't necessarily a, a Pelagian. There's a lot of misconceptions about Abelard that um, in, in a lot of ways, the moral exemplar theory for Abelard, he didn't necessarily deny the other things that were going on in the atonement. 
But for a lot of sort of historical political reasons, Abelard was emphasizing this to the exclusion of some other things. But if you were to ask him, like, is there an objective element of the atonement? I think there's good reason to think, well, yeah, there, he would say, yes, there is. But the thing we have to remember about Abelard and just like any other person in church history who's doing theology is he's a product of his times, right? So he's coming in at the rise of this nominalist school and the nominalist, um, the nominalist theory of the atonement, the nominalist perspective on God's power is just like Abelard is saying here that God can forgive sins apart from any, uh, apart from any necessary act on his part. He could just choose to forgive sins sheerly out of an act of his own omnipotent will. And so Abelard is wrestling with, all right, well, if that's the case, if God could just choose to overlook sin, then what's the point of the cross? Like why, why, like even, even if we say like, well, that's the most fitting or the most glorious way. Well, why though? Like why the cross? And that's where Anselm answering that same question. We talked about this last week. Is he saying, because there's this objective reality that God has to somehow compensate for or has to correct in order to be able to forgive sinners. Abelard is saying, well, no, there, there is no object necessarily an objective reality that God has to compensate for. So what's the point of the cross? He says, well, the point of the cross is to provide us with the proper example to follow so that we may ourselves live the blessed life and obtain heaven through that blessed life. And so this, this actually ties into um, Mike Horton's recent book on um, justification. He doesn't talk about Abelard, but he spends basically the whole thesis of the first volume. I would say once you get past, like, I don't know, past like Chrysostom and maybe uh, Augustine, once you get past this, it's kind of the rise of nominalism and how that becomes the dominant the dominant philosophical perspective in uh, the Middle Ages. And because right. of this dominant, dominant perspective in the Middle Ages, the nominalist school is saying that God can really do whatever he wants. And so he, he can certainly have the creature obtain salvation by merit. And so this is just this is just the system that God has put in place, even even though the Roman Catholic Church would affirm that no creature could obtain merit on their own their own um, abilities. Even prior to sin, no creature could obtain sufficient merit to earn salvation. And so this is the environment that Abelard is starting to kind of come into is this beginning stages of, of nominalism. And so he has to wrestle with if the cross is not necessary on a strict sense, then what's the point of it? And that's where he lands is, well, the point is to show us how to live the blessed life. Jesus came to show us how to live the blessed life. Abelard wouldn't necessarily have some of those Pelagian tendencies though, that, that we earn, we earn salvation by our moral life, but that we sort of are already given uh, eternal life. And so we have to learn how to live in it. And if we don't learn to live in it, um, then we, we live in our misery. There's actually, it's interesting because that's actually the same position that Rob Bell came down on in that book, Love Wins, several yeah. years back, is that that hell is a door, C.S. Lewis too, hell is a jail that's locked from the inside. And right. so when we don't walk out that door, it's because we choose not to walk out that door. Abelard probably would say that's a lot of hogwash, but what he would say is that if we choose not to live the blessed life, then we shouldn't be surprised when we don't live the blessed life. So there, there's a lot going for his theory and that it does make... It does sort of read the, to the text on the surface, and it does emphasize that holiness is something that we're responsible for. But at the end of the day, he loses sight of the fact that something objective had to happen. 
even though I don't think he would necessarily deny that, the prominent part of his theory is that that the objective reality doesn't really need to happen. And so it's really just about readjusting our perspective. So let's parse that out because that's actually, I think, a really important and nuanced point. And I agree with you. I think there is at least some jettisoning of the objectivism that's relevant to the right. atonement. And it seems to me that when we look strictly, again, just in isolation at the essential elements of moral influence, it's requiring some kind of response for the atonement to be efficacious. So right. if we were to look at, again, in isolation, the, the kind of logical progression of moral influence in this objective view, I would say first it starts with, in, the, in terms of like a chain, the first link is when we look at the cross, we see the greatness of the divine love. The second link would be that looking on the cross, that delivers us from fear and it kind of kindles again within us an answering love. And the third link in that chain would be we respond to love with love and we no longer live in selfishness and sin. So this idea that essentially the sight of the selfless Christ dying for sinners moves us to repentance and faith. And if God will do all of that for us, then we ought not to continue in sin. So we repent and turn from it and are saved by becoming better people. So I'm really curious about this link because I think that that does lend to kind of a Pelagian type of view, like somewhere there's an outworking that's going to bend us toward the sense where we must respond because the cross does nothing except do something within us. And therefore it it requires a response from us. What do you think of that? Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I would, I would articulate differently is that the, the, the moral influence theory doesn't actually do something within us. So it kindles our love for God in the same way that like an act of kindness by our spouse kindles our love for them. So right, it's, exactly. it's not as though God, God actually like cultivates a love within us, like efficaciously. It's that he, he in Christ gives us every reason to love him. He gives us the reason, but it's still up to us to, to sort of like bring that love to fruition. Yes. And so it's, yes. it's, it's subjective. The atonement doesn't actually for Abelard, at least in his emphasis. And right. We have to remember like people aren't, people aren't internally consistent with themselves. So, so even though he would articulate certain objective elements, he also denies those objective elements with the other hand. So he wouldn't, he wouldn't necessarily affirm that the atonement actually does anything except for the fact that he would say it gives us a reason to love God, but right. that love is still generated by us. So, so yes, you're right that, that what it does is it cultivates or it fosters this love in us, but not in an ontological sense. It's not actually accomplishing anything in us. Exactly. It just makes God or it, it manifests God's lovableness to us such a way that it gives us a reason and sort of a target for us to generate that love. And I mean, like repentance and faith flows out of that. But I also don't think that he would say, um, you know, in my reading of Abelard, which is admittedly like limited, but I also don't think he would say that our good works, like that response in love is, is really efficacious. It's not, he's not articulating this in a way where like it generates merit. And that's what makes him sort of an anomaly in the Roman Catholic model. Um, it, It kind of like. The reformers would look at him and go like, well, you're crazy. Of course, the, the the atonement does something. But the Roman Catholic Church would also be like, well, okay, great. Like if it cultivates love in us, but what does that love do? And Abelard would be like, well, it doesn't do anything. Like the, that love is just love. Like we 
we exactly. are related to and we follow Jesus because we love him. So he's kind of an odd duck in the history of theology because he doesn't really he doesn't really fit in any of the major camps. Right. Compared to what we talked about so far, the atonement in this view really lacks a certain power. There's no like secret energy of the Holy right. Spirit, so to speak. It, it has no effect outside the believer. So it's real in the person's experience, but nowhere else. And right. that makes it very unique. So as I see it, there's there's this place where free will must have to come in by way of like the Pelagian definition of free will. Right. So we have like within this theory, the death of Christ is understood as a catalyst to reform society. It really kind of writ large. And it's supposed to inspire men and women to follow his example and to live good and moral lives of love, not necessarily because those good and moral lives of love necessitate salvation or are meritorious to bring about salvation, right. but merely because like that's the appropriate response. Right. It's as if, if you see the death of Christ and you understand it in some level of its completeness, in some kind of plenary way, then your natural response would be to serve and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And the Holy Spirit, I think, in, in like you're saying, in deference to him, the Holy Spirit comes to help Christians produce that moral change. But logically, in the moral influence theory, the eschatological development too, also becomes about morality. You know, it's taught basically that after death, the human race will be judged and by their, by their conduct in life. But again, that is coming out of this sense of really seeing, and, and I guess appropriating by faith, although even that is a little bit confusing for me, whether we're envisioning that death, whether we're envisioning it and also kind of appropriating it in a immortal sense, of course. But also I think there is a strong influence on the physical death of Christ. Like here is somebody suffering on our behalf and true love cannot exist apart from being inconvenienced. And here we have the truest, the most deep inconvenience that results in both this emotional and physiological and physical suffering. And this in turn creates a strong emphasis on, again, the, the free will as a human response to follow in Jesus' example. I, it seems to me like there is a really so, strong central point of free will that must exi- exist in this theory for it to become relevant. Right. Yeah. And, and that's... I mean that's the that's the strange thing though is that although um although Christ gives us the reason uh or puts in front of us the reason why we should love God he de- kind of demonstrates you know to kind of borrow language from Romans like he demonstrates God's love for us and in that gives us or demonstrates the reason why we should in return love God right um, there's also no real reason in this theory why that couldn't have been accomplished in another way and that's so, so that's that's what happens when you have sort of these subjective views of the atonement is that although the cross is explained, the purpose of the cross is explained, there's no real reason why the cross had to happen. So it becomes kind of this weird catch-22 where he's he's trying to articulate his view is in response to the fact that the cross was not necessary. So he's trying to explain why the cross. Um, but then at the same time, his view makes it so we could actually disregard the cross if we needed to for some reason. Yes. That's and a good and point. that that's probably the primary weakness of this is that, you know, the scripture everywhere that it reflects on what Christ did on the cross, it 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 reflects on that in a sense where Christ actually accomplished something on the cross. Right? What he did on the cross was efficacious to bring about the salvation of his people. Where this theory goes really wrong is that the cross as I've said, I mean, like we're kind of we're doing that thing where we kind of circle around the same thing, but it's hard because it's hard to get your 
your head around this. As a Reformed Christian, it's hard to talk about the cross or think about the cross or kind of like step into this theory where the cross doesn't do anything because it's so counterintuitive to all of our instincts. But in this theory, like the cross really doesn't actually accomplish anything. And that's the right. chief failure of this is that unless you kind of like we said last week, unless you tie satisfaction theory to a real concrete penal substitution, you lose a major significant biblical element of what's going on in the cross. In the same sense here, if you have an entirely subjective atonement, you lose the fact that Christ actually did something on the cross. Um, you know, and, and Christ could have lived a moral life and demonstrated his love for us in ways that don't actually involve him dying on the cross. And just like we said last week, Michael Horton says this all the time is if, if Christ's death on the cross doesn't actually do anything, then in what way does it demonstrate anything? Right. right. It's just a it's just a first century Jewish teacher dying on a cross unless right the cross actually accomplishes something. So the, the very premise that this ex is somehow an example for us, it, it falls apart because it, an example of what? Like a meaningless death? Well, if it's a meaningly meaningless death, then wouldn't the more loving thing actually be to avoid the meaningless death and to to teach further how to follow how to follow God? Um so it's it's a very strange kind of theory that, you know, if I'm being honest, like I don't really understand it all that well, except what I've read. I, I can't, you know, I can sort of step into Anselm's theory and understand it from a um, I get where he's going and I get how he got there. Abelard's theory, I really just don't understand because it it on one level, like I said, it it takes all of the sort of ethical teaching of the scriptures and it's able to kind of interpret that on face value, which is a strength. But right. it also sort of just ignores all of all of the theological teaching about what the cross was and what the purpose of the cross was um, in a way that's really kind of confusing to me. So the thing about this is. I agree that our instincts tend to lead us away from this because I think we recognize that it's a little bit too flat. It's a little bit too shallow of an explanation of the atonement because it takes away all of the power again. Right. And yet when I kind of think about where this might be prevalent in kind of modern evangelicalism, I actually found, found it to be surprisingly, surprisingly ubiquitous and especially, and this is where I'm curious about your opinion, especially in contemporary worship through music. So yeah. probably this is what's interesting. And I think one of the reasons why I've become like increasingly uncomfortable with this view, again, more in isolation, but also as it kind of permeates other kind of atonement theories or just our general thoughts is that I'm increasingly uncomfortable as we talked about before with anything that forces me or pushes me in a direction to violate the second commandment by envisioning some image of right. Jesus. Yeah. And I think that this tends to push us in that direction because we want to see with our eyes the pain and suffering. We want to look on the passion of the Christ and be convicted by way of seeing with our eyes the suffering that something horrible is happening here. Some great love is being expressed. And I, I take issue with that the older I get. That, that That's not helpful and it's actually harmful. But the second thing would be because we want to see it and because we want to be, we need to be moved by something sometimes. And the best way to be moved by something is to see it to really experience right. it with our eyes. 
And so I find this especially in music. So probably like the best known and best love hymn on the Passion in modern times is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Right. And we're recording this like right before Palm Sunday and two weeks out from Easter. And, you know, how many congregations are going to sing this really beautiful hymn? But if you look at it, that hymn sets forth nothing but the moral view. I mean, every line, it emphasizes the effect on the observer of surveying the wondrous cross. And I'm, I'm not saying that that is a song that we shouldn't sing. I'm really saying it puts us in a direction that is very much like moral influence. Look on yeah. the cross and be influenced by what you see. And even though that's a hymn, I see this like all the time in, in even more contemporary stuff. So for instance, another song that I think we're going to sing, honestly, and, and many others are going to sing is Hillsong Worship's Oh, Praise the Name or Anastasius, yeah. which the first verse says, I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my savior on that cursed tree. And then it goes on basically say, we praise the name of Jesus because we see right. almost in a literal sense, the death of Christ on the cross and what that does to us. Yeah. And so I think there's, it's interesting how we still find this embedded and impounded in so much of what we do to see Christ in this physical sense, and then to be moved or transformed then to make a decision to respond to that. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me pull it up real quick. But so the scripture does talk about the cross as a demonstration of God's love, but I want to make Absolutely. sure I have the whole, the whole thing in front of me before I start talking about it. Um, yeah. It's, this is not to say that like we are not to be as the Bible commands us to understand this great sacrifice and to be moved by the love of God reflecting the cross. Because one of the mistakes we can make is that once again, to everywhere I see in these atonement theories, a separation of Christ himself and his benefits. If we separate those two, then what happens is we sometimes get into the place where we say, God loves me because Jesus died for me. And that's yeah. not what the Bible says. God, the, the, the death of Jesus on the cross is a great expression of God's love. And we ought to look at it that way. It's not the other way around. So we can't get it twisted. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to read uh, from Romans chapter five here. I'm going to start at verse one. So this is another one of those. Um, I actually had a baseball cap that had this, um, like the verse reference, um, like embroidered on one side and they had a cross on the other side. I love that hat actually. I wish I still had it, but this is one of those verses that kind of lends itself to being abstracted from the chapter. And if you abstract this verse from the chapter, you actually do end up with moral exemplar theory. But if you read the verse in context, what you end up with is a much more robust objective atonement. So starting in verse one, uh, Romans chapter five, verse one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So when you read this in the whole chapter, 
the demonstration of God's love for us is directly tied to the to what it brings about in our lives. So it's not just that Christ died for us in some ethereal sense that shows us that God loves us, but it shows us that God loves us because that love has been poured into us. And this is actually one of the passages that that people use to talk about the Holy Spirit as the bond of love, because the love of God being poured into us is actually the Holy Spirit. So there's that element of it. But through the death of Christ, we are reconciled to the Father. So it's not just a matter of of demonstrating to us in terms of like revealing to us the state of affairs that already exists and now we know about it. It's that God's love is demonstrated to us through the cross because of what it brings about. And that's really where this just misses everything is that Although the scripture talks about the cross as a demonstration of God's love, and it's not just here, there's other passages. Um, John 3.16, you know, kind of being the chief is that Christ Christ came, God gave his only son so that we might live and have eternal life through his name, right? It's all over the gospel of John. But that love is nonsense if the cross doesn't actually bring about our salvation. And so we have to always tie this to some sort of objective um some sort of objective reality that the cross accomplishes. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be penal substitution in order to sort of like correct the issue with moral exemplar theory. Right. Um, penal substitution is obviously the correct view in our in our understanding. But as long as you have some sort of objective reality being affected by the cross, then yes, it is actually the moral example. Because Christ Christ's moral example is that he did what he needed to do to rescue his people. That's the example. Yeah, and so right if we're on. going to draw an example from that, and this is exactly where it goes, right? Prior to this, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, right? Well, what do we do with our character that comes from suffering? We testify to the world around us what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we share that with the world in order to bring about the hope of the gospel, not only in our lives, but to those that we're evangelizing. So so the, the moral example is there, and we follow Christ's example in suffering as he did. But that suffering, not only his suffering, but our suffering is meaningless apart from the objective reality that's brought about, which is reconciliation to God, which is being saved from his wrath. So, I, I, I mean, it it's one of those things that like this is this is hard because like, it sounds super arrogant, but I don't really know any other way to say it. Like, I don't really understand how people can read Romans five and not see as clearly the reality of you know, what the reform position says about salvation, right? Save from the wrath of God through the blood of Christ by faith or through faith by grace. Like it's all right there. And I guess the only thing I can say is like the Holy Spirit has illuminated that to us in a way that he's, for whatever reason, he's chosen not to illuminate that to other Christians and has flat out hidden it from those that are not elect. Well, truth is arrogant, right? Even intramural truth is absolutely arrogant. And there is, you're right, a critique that should be made here because it should be said, I think, in the first instance that there is truth in the theory, but taken by itself, it's absolutely inadequate. 
but it's right. not entirely untrue. So I think what we're saying is it's important that we respond to the love of Christ seen on the cross, that we recognize there is a compelling force in his example, but we really have to soundly reject any theory which reports that the only accomplishment of the atonement was just some kind of moral influence. Right. And the way that I see it, and I think you've already kind of said this, but I want to kind of tease out like a quick, my pseudo attempt at your beautiful analogies is <laughs> the subjective view just implodes under its own weight. And that's because if Christ was not actually doing something by his death, then we are confronted with just a piece of showmanship and nothing more. So like if I were drowning in a rushing river and you jumped in to save me, which I'm pretty sure you would do because you're, you're a good brother. And in the process you died, you know, and you saved me, I could easily recognize the love and the sacrifice involved in your actions. But let's say that I was just like chilling safely on the riverbank and you jumped into this torrent of water to show your love, I really wouldn't see any point in that. I would right. not only lament that you had there's a senseless act that resulted in your death. So unless the death of Christ really does something, it is not, in fact, like a demonstration of love, which is right. basically what you said. Like, And I love that the, at least like the Anselmic satisfaction theory of atonement, basically, and as well as like Luther and Calvin, was grounded in the belief that the just, justice is like an immutable and necessary attribute of God's character and therefore right. had to be dealt with. So I guess in the end, this really is just a difference of understanding what it means to, to talk about objective atonement versus subjective atonement. I guess right. in the end, that's where we fall. Yeah. And that, that all ties back to what I was talking about earlier with this understanding in, in the area of theology proper of whether or not God is able in light of his nature to um, effect the forgiveness of sins without actually satisfying the demands of justice. And right. so the nominalist view, whether it's Abelard or whether it's Gabriel Beale and, you know, Dun Scotus, um, the nominalist view says, well, of course, God can affect the forgiveness of sins without satisfying justice because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. Right. But the, the orthodox position, which I would say in this area, there's orthodox there's Orthodox believers in the Reform- the Roman Catholic Church, too. Just on this particular issue, they're Orthodox. Um, the Orthodox position doesn't say there's some standard of justice that God is obligated to, but right. that justice itself is an immutable and, and uh, indefigitable attribute of God. So God cannot, God cannot violate his own nature. He cannot act in a way that's inconsistent with his own character. And so in order for him to bring about the forgiveness of sins, he has to satisfy justice. Otherwise, it would be as nonsensical as saying that God can be both God and not God at the same time, or that God can choose to both exist and not exist at the same time. It's as illogical to say those things as it is to say that God can be the judge just and the justifier without somehow reconciling those things. Right. And so Paul makes that argument. I don't have it right in front of me, but Paul makes that argument that because of what Christ does on the cross, that God can both be just and the justifier. And so the the moral exemplar theory, apart from being anchored or tethered to some objective atonement theory, 
can't reconcile that. God can't. The only reason that God can be just and the justifier in the moral exemplar theory is because the nominalist understanding that God can actualize this logical incoherency. But if we want to argue as the bulk of the, the Orthodox Christian tradition has that God himself can't actualize a logical inconsistency because that's not consistent with his character, then in order for God to be right. just and the justifier, there has to be something that happens that, that and in the phrase has to be filled with content that allows him to satisfy the, the consequences of justice while at the same time applying the benefits of that satisfaction to the believer. If we lose that, then we lose everything. Right. Man, all I got to say in response to that is get some. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That seemed like the appropriate response. It, it was the appropriate response. I'm left dumbfounded with that. <laughs> Dumbfounded. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. Now I'm trying to figure out where that passage is. Just and justifier. I can't remember off the top of my head. I can't remember off the top of my head either. This is what this is what happens when you get a microphone in front of you. Like all I know, everything goes away. Of anything goes yeah, right out the window. Absolutely. I know it's in Romans. Romans. Yeah. Just read all of Romans. It's worth your time anyway. Yeah. You'll find it in there. Yeah. Speaking of reading all of Romans. So I'm looking at my Bible reading plan that I mentioned last week. And uh, the last day of my Bible reading plan is Revelation 1 through 22. <laughs> nice. So I'm going to get just nice. smacked around by some eschatology uh, right on the last day, which is appropriate, I guess. That's great. You know what, though? It, it, probably to read, going back to Romans, like, how long do you think it would take to read all of Romans? Like, if you're an average reader, like, maybe an hour? Maybe no, an hour no, not even close. No, not even that. Maybe, you're, like, you're like, maybe like 30 reader? to 45 minutes, maybe. Yeah, like, that's something that everybody should do. I try to do that, like, probably once a year, just yeah. because that is one of those texts where it's so easy to kind of get lost in a singular argument that Paul is making. Right. And you just need to read this whole letter together. It's just such yeah. a beautiful contour. Well, and, and I mean, Paul, Paul wrote the whole letter intending you to read the whole letter, like in order. Exactly. That's actually, we can kind of transition into our spiritual conferencing. Um, just a reminder for the listeners, we're going to be doing these sort of like short recaps at the end of the episode that we're calling spiritual conferencing, which is an old Puritan term to kind of yes, talk see. about like what God has been teaching us through our devotions or whatever. Um, and this is just sort of like a side I actually felt really convicted today about chronological reading plans, which is weird because I know that like Conrad is really, really into chronological reading plans. That's but true. this is this is where I, I got the conviction, right, is my plan today. I'm finally into the New Testament and it had me read Matthew 14 before it had me read Matthew 13. And it did that because it's trying to sync the, chron the chronology up with probably with Luke, I think is there this sort of the standard they're using for the chronology. I, I don't know why, but that seems like the standard because Luke goes in order and the other gospels jump around. But here's where I got convicted of it is the Holy spirit didn't inspire Matthew 14 before Matthew 13. So I'm at, in doing this, I'm actually reading this scripture and I'm actually like disconnecting the argument that the Holy spirit is making Right. In light of the fact that Matthew 14 follows Matthew 13 by reversing those. So like, it's, I don't think it's any great sin to read that, but I'm just kind of sitting there like, why, are, why am I doing this? And I mean, like, 
I don't know. I guess I'm just convicted like the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing when he put together scripture. And the <laughs> the fact that Matthew 14 comes after Matthew 13, like I said, I don't think it's a sin to read Matthew 14 before you read Matthew 13. But sometimes I wonder when we do these chronological plans or or even just like the machine plan where you're reading like, you know, you're reading like Old Testament, New Testament, like you're doing it kind right. of chunked up like that. I wonder sometimes are we actually disconnecting scripture from itself and, and reading it not only in a non-canonical way, right? Like you read canonically by reading books in context with their other canonical kind of like close context, but are we disconnecting passages from passages and chapters from chapters such that we're doing exactly what we wouldn't want someone to do with our own writing, right? When yeah, I write right a on. paper, I wouldn't want someone to take it and like rearrange the paper to try to like reconstruct what they think was the order that like entered my mind because I designed that. I, I like structured that paper in a particular way in order to build on itself and to prove a point. So I don't know. That's kind of, that's not really like my spiritual conferencing thing for the week, but I was just thinking about that this morning. I think you're right. It can definitely mess you up. I mean, especially if, and I've done the McShay plan for like many years in a row. And actually one of the reasons this year I moved away from it was because I had done it so many times over these last like sequential number of years that I found it was kind of doing exactly what you said. It was like unintentionally compartmentalizing so yeah. much scripture that I really needed to be exposed to like the context in the broader scope of what was happening in each of those passages. Yeah. And really the only way to do that was just like to get after it in the way that's set out for us. Yeah. But I think that we've talked about as God has preserved it through the Holy Spirit. Right. There's like crazy value in that. So in, in a sense, like there's no wrong way to read the Bible, like you're saying. And yet there is a place in which to be like as intentional as you can be about preserving or honoring the way in which yeah. it has been set forth by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought a lot about that. Like, I don't think that we can say that the order of the books, like in the canon is inspired. Oh, for sure. But yeah, I think sure. we have to say that on some level, I mean, especially in like certain books, almost all of the books, the order of chapters is certainly inspired. I mean, exactly. you can make an argument for the Psalms that the order is not inspired. You can make arguments that like the Proverbs aren't necessarily that the order isn't necessarily inspired. Like there's clear indications that this, the Proverbs are like multiple books kind of attached to each other. But like Matthew was inspired in the order that it was written. So right. I, I don't know. It was just, it was just well, a weird me, thought that came to my mind this morning no, as I, I was reading. I think that's actually good right on. And let me give you my contribution to the, the spiritual conferencing conversation for this week that relates to that is I've been really meditating on the book of Acts and just how important it is to kind of, I think, read in really like a broad way, it, like go through like a bunch of chapters, kind of get this amazing sense of what God is doing in his people. And one of the things that I've been meditating on is just how amazing it is that God gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell with us and the power of the Holy Spirit in our yeah. lives, both for discernment and direction. And one of the things that was really impressed upon me is going back into like the first chapter, there when the disciples are saying, well, listen, Judas was clearly like a bad dude, like not chosen, like clearly we need to replace this dude. And so they come to like two, I don't know how they did this per se, but like they're like, let's find two dudes that were with us, that experienced all that Christ taught us, that were there with the miracles. And so they get these two dudes together. And when they choose Matthias, they actually cast lots. Yeah. And then the next chapter, you have like the full coming in Pentecost of the Holy Spirit, which is like 
just like an amazing chapter. Like, I mean, I've never been accused of being drunk because I'm so passionately preaching on Lord Jesus Christ, <laughs> but what, what like an amazing experience that would be. And so here you have them coming. And then from this, that point on, no more casting lots. Like there's yeah. a clear breakage in what God is bringing about in his people by way of not just the Holy Spirit in the way that we think of him as influencing our lives, bringing conviction, bringing sanctification, bringing about the right words to speak about the gospel and the testimony of Lord Jesus Christ. But even beyond that, pragmatically speaking, in a logical sense, the Holy Spirit literally leading us into and through all truth in small and big ways, such that like there's no need to cast lots anymore. Yeah. Like here we have, like in your life and in mine, eternally speaking, the eternal contemporary of God himself dwelling with us to bring us into right living in such a way that we need not rely on any kind of superstition or any kind of even beyond that, like outside well-intentioned influence for signage that would point us in the direction God wants to give us. He says, I have something better for you. And that is the helper. So reading that like in context, in this kind of way of sequentially in multiple chapter, like to see that God is bringing that about in his story was really helpful to me. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, um, <clears throat> it's interesting. I actually take the view that um, the apostles shouldn't have replaced Judas um, and that Paul was the 12th apostle. And so like, I actually look at that passage a little differently, but it's, it's interesting because that passage actually is the single most significant passage to prove that there's no more apostles today because right, yeah. the apostles who followed Jesus obviously thought that there was supposed to be 12 and right. no more and no less, right? They didn't go, exactly. oh, yeah, well, we can just take both of them. We'll have 13 apostles, <laughs> right? They said, we have to have 12. <laughs> his office is empty. We have to fill his office. And so we're going we're gonna to do this. We're going to replace Judas. Now, I think, I think they erred in doing that. Um, I think they should have waited until after the Holy Spirit came, and then the Holy Spirit would have chosen an apostle, as, as God did. Um, but even if, you, even if you take that view, the apostles themselves clearly thought that, the apostle, the apostolic office was limited to 12 right. people. Um, so that's a very interesting passage to me. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating because even at the end of chapter one there, it's just what appeals to me. What's really been, again, pressed on me was this idea that they're trying to appeal to the Lord. They're looking for the discernment. In fact, I pulled up just chapter one and verse 24. They say, this was so fascinating. They prayed, Lord, you know, everyone's heart show us which of these two men you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then at 26, then they cast lots. So it's, it's interesting as if like they're using the lots themselves, they've prayed already, but they know that in a, this is going to sound crazy, but like in a strange sense, the prayer wasn't sufficient to show them. It wasn't as if, because we take for granted that we may pray as James says, ask for help and the Lord will give it to you freely. But here we have an asking for help that must be, corroborate at least with the casting of lots. And so to your point, either that is a mistake in what they're doing there, or they're recognizing that there is some insufficiency. There is a gap and they must kind of use this medium by which they feel like the Lord is going to communicate to him the decision that he has. Yeah. Yeah. And either way, um, the same, the point you're making is, is true either way that after this happened, after the coming of the Holy spirit, they realized they no longer needed to rely on omens or signs or things that indicate the Holy spirit's approval, indicate God's approval by means of chance. 
right? They, they understood that after that, they had the Holy Spirit living within them in order to make decisions and to operate according to God's moral will. So, so the point is the same either way, that their perspective on how to, how to understand God's influence and God's direction changed after the Holy Spirit came. So that's a really solid point. Yeah. So give us some, a little, give us a little conferencing. What do you got going on? Yeah. I mean, apart from kind of what I'm reflecting on and it's sort of tied in is like, you know, I'm reading the gospels and I'm reading the, um, what I was reading today was the account of the various feedings of these large groups, right? There's the, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding, it was the 7,000 or 4,000 or whatever, some huge number. And I'm reading it and I'm kind of feeling like these apostles are really stupid. Right. Because because at first I was like, well, maybe it's just a quirk of the text that like they didn't realize or like, you know, it's hard to tell with. And this is actually was part of the strength of the chronological views. You're seeing events as they're happening and sort of their relationship at at the second feeding. I don't remember what the number was, but there's multiple feedings. And at the second one. You know, they come to Jesus says, all right, give these people some food. If we send them out of here, they're going to pass out on the way home. They're going to die in the desert because there's this a desolate place. They've been following me for days. We need to give them some food. And even though at that point, the apostles had seen Jesus multiply the food in almost the exact same phrasing, right? He says, give, right. I think Philip comes and says, how, where are we going to send them away? They need to go get some food. And he says, you feed them. And the, the disciples are like, what are you talking about? We don't have any food for them. Like we don't have enough money to buy food for them. Well, that had already happened once. And so now the second time comes around and they say again, well, what do you mean? We don't have any food. (laughs) So it's like, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking like, (laughs) what kind of idiots are these guys? Like, how stupid can you be? Like, you literally saw him multiply this before. And then it hit me like, I'm that guy. Like, I'm the stupid guy that doesn't remember God's faithfulness every time I start to get a little worried about something. Wow. And, And then, and then it kind of fed into like, I'm the stupid guy that thinks that like, I'm going to rearrange the order of Matthew in order to make more sense to me so I can get this special insight. Like, (laughs) so like this whole idea of like, maybe, maybe just maybe the Holy spirit knows what he's doing. Like maybe I shouldn't stand in judgment over the apostles because they forgot or because they didn't understand that Christ was going to multiply the loaves again. And then, you know, you keep reading and Christ makes that same point. Basically he's like, Hey guys, like, do you remember how many baskets there were, right? Do you remember how much leftovers there were, right? 12 baskets of leftover from five loaves and two fish, right? Five baskets or whatever it was. Like he goes, he goes, I wasn't even talking about bread, right? I was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. So like, he's saying like, you guys don't get this. Why don't you get this? And instead of looking at the text and saying like, why don't these idiots get it? I should look at it and be thankful for the fact that I get it because here's the kicker. I have the New Testament, right? I have these right. idiots reflection on what happened to help me from being an idiot. So like, it's really <laughs> hypocritical for me to, to look at these guys and go like, what a bunch of morons. And this ties into what you were saying. Like this all happened prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. So whatever knowledge they had, right? At, at Caesarea Philippi, Christ says flat out, like you didn't, you didn't come to figure this out of your own, Peter. And by extension, apostles, this was revealed to you by God. So now when I'm standing here after Pentecost, after the close of the canon, I've got the the full counsel of God on my tablet, in my hand, in an extra copy in my glove box in my car. I should not be the one standing in judgment over these guys, because apart from what they have delivered to me by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'd be standing there going, what do you mean you're going to feed? I know you fed 
5,000 people yesterday, but what do you mean you're going to feed 7,000 people today? I don't get it. We only have seven loaves of bread. So, so that's kind of where I'm at is like, I just need to be less of an arrogant guy in terms of thinking that I understand what's going on because I'm so smart. Like nothing that I know is coming about even, even though like, yes, God has gifted us with different intellectual capacities, right? I have a different intellectual capacity than another person. um, And that has enabled me to study theology and be able to make connections that other people just might not be capable of making. They might not have the mental capacity to do it. But even that is a gift from God. So the second I start to become arrogant, God points me to this text where he's going, yeah, well, you wouldn't, you would have been really confused about this second feeding too. So, so don't, don't stand in judgment over people who would, who were in the same place you would have been. Man, what an amazing passage. Like we could talk for another hour about that. I know. Let me me just say, let me just say this about that. Cause I do love what you just said. And that is, it's kind of an intellectualized stupidity as well. So I picture like all the disciples, they basically like the modern equivalent would be like, listen, Jesus, we threw this all into like Excel. We ran a model and not only did we figure out you can't feed everybody, but this is how much it would cost for us to go and get that much. Right. So it's, it's almost like they're trying to say, we're vetting out these numbers. We are smarter. We know what it costs. And what's interesting to me is Jesus says, go and see, go and see. And that's, I think what he still says to us today, like what you think is impossible for God to do, go and see what he's doing, go and see what resources are available. And God will show you that he's able to do immeasurably more than you can even imagine. Yeah. And and on one level too, like we look at them and, and, to be fair, like Jesus chastises them for their lack of faith. So, so, and, and that's preserved for us in the text, but it's not there for us to go. Yeah. What, look at these guys who didn't even believe in Jesus when he's right in front of them. Right. Like, and, and I've said that, like, I've said that about the disciples, like how could these guys not trust Jesus when he was right there in front of them? But the fact that he's, that Jesus is saying to them, you of little faith, how long until you believe that's there for my edification, because how often do I fail, fail to believe? And so just as they're running their spreadsheet in their head going, well, I don't know. We got a lot of people here. We only got, it's going to, it would cost 200 days wages to feed these guys. And we have seven loaves of bread at the same right. time. How often do I not share the gospel with someone? Cause I'm like, well, they're never going to, they're never going to accept the gospel. How yeah, often exactly. do I shy away from that? Or even like, how often do we in our churches go like, well, we just can't afford to be more generous with our money because, you know, we, we got a budget we've got to meet. Like how often do we that now be wise, you know, you, you have, we have budgets for a reason. God's called us to be wise stewards of our money, but how often do we, are we the ones of little faith who don't realize that God is able to provide abundantly for us? Right on. Is it cool for me to say this has just been like a tasty cast right here? A tasty cast? Yeah. Like it's just been good. Yeah. It, I guess. I mean, it's, it's very cool. <laughs> I don't know what tasty cast means. <laughs> I mean, like, so it came out weird. Like I'm talking about tasty cakes, like two, one word there, or like a portmanteau. I just mean like this cast has been like spiritually tasty, like good for the soul, like really filling of good quality spiritual food. Tasty. I hope so. You know, delicious. You calling this a tasty case, a tasty cast uh, <laughs> reminds me. So I listened to this show called Reply All. You've heard of this show, right? I did, did, Wait, are you talking about this week's episode? Yeah, where they make all the fake podcasts. 
Yes. It was beautiful. So everyone has to go listen to it. But basically, to not not nerd out too much. This is every podcaster's nightmare is they got a call from somebody who um, so the, the premise of the show is every once in a while they do a show where like someone calls with a weird like technical issue or like they got spammed by somebody and they want them to figure out how. And this guy called and he says, I love podcasts, but for some reason, every time I play 99% Invisible, um, I want to say Bruno Mars, but it's not Bruno Mars, it's Roman, Roman. Mars. Uh, my 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 stereo in my car like freaks out and reboots and I don't know why. So they went through this whole process, but in order to figure it out, they figured out that it had to do with the fact that the percentage, I don't want to spoil it for you. I probably yeah, you, just are you about to spoil that straight up? But either way, they create all these fake podcasts to try to replicate the problem. And they are hilarious. My favorite was, uh, 99% parenthetical or was a hundred percent parenthetical <laughs> yes. with Sarah Koenig. It was so funny. So go check it out. They, they recorded full episodes of all these fake podcasts that you have to go listen to. They're pretty yeah, awesome. They're, they're so good. What, what's the only, the only thing I'm fortunate about that episode is I realized that their fake podcasts are better than our real podcasts. <laughs> yeah. The 99% or a hundred percent parenthetical or whatever they called it was pretty awesome. It is so hilarious. Yeah. yeah. So go listen to that. There's a little bonus affirmation from the both of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, I think we probably are out of time. I do want to share one thing at the end. Um, I was going to say it during denials, but that didn't feel appropriate. So we, uh, we are, I don't want to say sad, but we are disappointed in a certain sense. Uh, according to Christ, which is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters, um, is going off the air. And they're not doing the thing that most podcasts do where they just sort of stop producing content and you just never hear from them again. But they're making a conscious decision to stop podcasting, primarily because um, one of the hosts of the show has decided that he just needs to make space for more important things in his life. Um, so we are super excited for everything that God's going to do in their lives. This is a, a step of faithfulness that I'm very proud uh, of them for making. Um, but we're very sad and it's a loss to the podcasting network for the Society of Reform Podcasters and to Reform Podcasting as a whole. Um, they are they were one of the best, if not the best Reform Baptist podcast that is on that was on the air, hands down across the board. So right if you are a 1689 confessional Reform Baptist um, and you want to make a podcast, now is the time to do it. Uh, get in touch <laughs> with me because we would really love to foster that because there's uh, although yeah, I disagree sure. with the 1689 position, there is a major lack of good representation of that view on on sort of the reformed internet, Twitter sphere, blogosphere, podcast sphere, or whatever. So yeah, that thanks. said, that. we are making some adjustments to our contest, which you can enter at reformbrotherhood.com slash contest. We were going to give away a bunch of a tour according to Christ gear, but we're going to give away other gear instead. Um, so go check that out. <laughs> Um, you know, they, uh, they're actually shutting down their social media. So, um, you know, we, we really appreciate everything they've done. We really love, uh, the show. All of their episodes are going to stay in the archives. As far as I know, um, I'll actually check in with them because they may be deleting those files. So I'll talk about that and get them, getting them archived, but it's a, it's a wealth of information from a reformed Baptist perspective, um, that we want to make sure we, we kind of cultivate and keep, uh, keep working. And we have killer stuff too. So confessionalware.com. Yes. You can check out some of the Reformed Brotherhood yeah. paraphernalia and accoutrements, if you will. And yeah. those are going to be part of our giveaway. So don't worry. We got good mugs too. Yes. So on that note, uh, Dale, Drew, and the rest of the guys over there, we love you. 
Uh, We can't wait to see what God's going to do in your life. And until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.